0: We'll be in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and we'll need God's help to receive and be transformed by his word this morning. So let's pray together. Father, it's really difficult for us to approach your word rightly. It's difficult for us to comprehend What this is that we hold in our hands here. That you breathed out this word by the power of your Holy Spirit through human authors centuries ago, revealing yourself to us. And that this is powerful, like a double edged sword, that it cuts down to the heart of matters. And I pray that we would not approach it lightly but with a correct sense of fear and reverence and humility. Lord, please help me to serve your people well and just give this word to your people and help us to receive it and be transformed by it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a man... Over a period of time, assembles an arsenal of extremely powerful weapons. And then after careful planning, when the time is just right, brings ten suitcases full of these weapons into a hotel room in Las Vegas. And then when thousands of people are gathered below in view of his window for a country music festival, opens fire on them, Just into this crowd of people, killing about 60 people, injuring hundreds of people before killing himself. And our our nation is shocked, and we grieve, and we're confused, and deeply unsettled. We speculate, why on earth would anybody do this? And we still don't really have answers. The last I saw, news headlines anyway, we don't know exactly why he would do this. It dominates the news headlines. It becomes a a powerful tool in the hands of lawmakers looking to make change, which creates even more discussion. Until the next headline comes. Until the next big shocking thing comes. Now, I bring it up. That's not the topic of the sermon, but this passage is going to be helpful in thinking about this. Our community, our nation has been thinking about this a lot and talking about it. My question for you is, how does being a Christian make our thinking about things like this different? How does being a Christian make our response to something like this different? Surely the way we perceive and think about a thing like this and respond emotionally and mentally to a thing like this would be different from non-Christians. How? Just think about it for a minute. I think there's lots of ways to answer that question. I mean, Jesus Christ has, we've been transformed so thoroughly through Jesus Christ. Whether or not we always live in light of that transformation, we are radically different people because of what God has done for us through Jesus. And it affects everything, including how we perceive the world around us. So there's lots of different ways I think that we can answer that question. I want to focus on just one this morning. As Christians, we have to remember that the most important factor in a situation like this isn't the gunman, the gunman's motivations, isn't gun control laws, isn't safety, but God. We have to remember that God is the most important factor in situations like this, as well as in all human history. God is the main character of the Bible. God is the main character of human history. He is the center point around everything, around which everything orbits. So that alone is a huge shift in in how we think and talk about things like this. What does God perceive in this situation? What does he see? How does he feel? What might he be doing? What might he do in response? These are some of the, the questions Christians ask during these times. It's not that we don't ask the other questions, what, what led him to do this, how can we prevent this? We ask those two. But these other questions the world's not going to ask. But we ask these because we're Christians. Now, Genesis is this ancient book written centuries and centuries ago ancient book about God. And in this book, we see a great deal about God's character, his history with his people, how he acts, who he is. In this passage, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that he sees the sins of the world. He grieves over the sins of the world. And he responds to the sins of the world. God sees, grieves, and responds to human sin. The passage breaks pretty neatly into two sections. The first section, verses 1 through 4, is just murky with mystery. It's a fascinating passage. The second section, verses 5 through 8, is crystal clear. We'll start with the murky mystery passage section, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it together. Genesis 6, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What? Who in the world are these characters? What in the world are these characters? It sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings, more than the Bible almost. You almost expect the next verse to describe giant, walking, talking trees. If you've read the Lord of the Rings books or watched the movies, you know what I was talking about. Well, let's start with the sons of God and the daughters of men. Who were these? People. Were they people? Were sons of God, daughters of men? Were they fallen angels? And human women? Were they demon possessed men and human women? Were they polygamous rulers abducting harems, just large groups of women as wives against their will? Were they the sons of righteous Seth intermarrying with the daughters of wicked Cain? These are all theories that you'll read. If you you consult commentaries and listen to other sermons, you'll hear all four of these theories put out there, and they all have some merit, and they each bring up a whole batch of other questions. And then the next character introduced, the Nephilim. What were these? Were these giants? If you have a King James Bible in your lap, I think it says giants. Was it a clan of of just large in stature, mighty warriors? Were the Nephilim offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? Were they some kind of strange half-breed angel people? Again, these are theories that you'll see, each with some merit, each opening up more questions. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you. I have, a, I have my own theory, but I'm just not even confident enough to even tell you from the pulpit what it is. We could talk about it later. We don't know. This is what's revealed to us. The Nephilim are, are mentioned once again in numbers, but really no more real information given to us about them. It's not revealed, it's not elaborated upon, it's not explained, it's not really even emphasized, it's just sort of plopped out there. If you're reading fast, you might breeze over it and then you have to go back and say, did that say what it seemed to say? We don't do well with this kind of thing as modern American Christians, I don't think. The fact that there are still some things that are just mysterious... Not mysterious as in like the, the board game clue that you, we've got to figure it out, but mysterious as in just not fully revealed to us yet. We don't know everything. We can't figure everything out. In spite of the fact that many of you have in your pocket in a small size of your hand rectangle the sum of all human knowledge... You still don't know everything. You still can't figure everything out. Not about human history, not about creation, even not, even not even about yourself. And it's certainly not about God. So this is a good point for us just to acknowledge that, to humble ourselves and remember that we know what has been revealed to us. And then we have to say, like Paul in Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There are things mysterious and glorious and awe-inspiring. I I think, my theory is, we'll spend all eternity learning this unfolding riches of God's glory and things that, that we just can't know and can't discover here in this fallen world yet. Now, much more could be said, and we could go into this. I I don't feel that that's the purpose for me with this passage with you this morning. Uh, But if you're intrigued by this, I invite you to study it, think about it. For now, let's just acknowledge that something happened here. This is about ten generations into human history. Something happened that brought about verse 3. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Now I'm pretty sure that one hundred and twenty years is, that doesn't mean that God is going to limit the lifespan of individual people to no more than one hundred and twenty years. I don't think that really bears out uh, with with lifespans we know about in the Bible. I think what he's saying is, in one hundred and twenty years, I'm putting an end to all this with the flood. I could be wrong on that, too. It's still not fully laid out for us. The point is, though, God, seeing whatever this is going on in verses 1 through 4, has had enough, and he's responding. My spirit shall not abide in man or shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And this points us to the next section, which is crystal clear. There's not much mystery in the next section. It's just clear. clear. Verses 5 through 8. Let's read that together. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, we see headlines like the Las Vegas shooting and other things going on, North Korea, We walk through the mall with our children and have to shield their eyes from the sexually explicit advertisements larger than life everywhere. We turn on the TV and we see this grotesque violence depicted. We see Charlotte, our murder rate, is far higher this year than it was last year. and It's very easy to think it's never been this bad before. We are definitely living through times worse than ever. And it's helpful to read this ancient history and see that that's just not true. There's nothing new under the sun. Wherever humankind has spread, as valuable as as mankind is, as made in God's image, as much inherent dignity as mankind has, wherever humankind has spread, so has sin. And here we see ancient history, it's about as bad as it could get. So when, when Christians, as we think about these things, we have to think about them in a broader context. This isn't some big new thing that there would be violence. We'll read in, a, in maybe a week down in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the human condition. We are, for all our value and the good things about us as being made in God's image, We're all messed up by sin. And the Lord sees it. The Lord sees the wickedness and evil. The Lord sees the sin. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the Lord sees it. He saw it then. He sees it now. This is sort of the macro level, the Google Earth view of sin. He sees the worldwide trends. He sees the movements of nations. He sees the movements of uh, oppressive cultural shifts, oppressing people. He sees drug trafficking and the sex trade. He sees... The influence of drugs and populations. He sees the big picture. He sees the great wickedness of man over the land. And then he also sees the micro. It says next, he sees that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he sees the great wickedness in the land, and he sees the evil deep down in the heart of men, the thoughts of the intentions of the heart. He even sees. You know, we don't, going back to this shooter in Las Vegas, nobody can figure out what's going on there, what happened there, but God knows. He sees it. He saw it. He saw the thoughts of the intentions of that man's heart. He's aware of what's going to be on the news headlines before the newscasters are. And he sees you and me. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The thoughts and intentions of your heart right now, he sees. The Bible says he searches the contents of our hearts. So he's not oblivious. He is actively watching. He sees the sin of mankind and he grieves over the sin of mankind. Moving on into verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. Now there's a lot that needs to be talked about here just that first four words and the Lord regretted how can the perfect God who makes no mistakes or errors regret Well, there's a lot that can be said about that I think for our purposes this morning we need to acknowledge that our human language for depicting the things of almighty eternal creator God will always be a little insufficient there will always be a little anthropomorphizing going on when we talk about God with human language. That is, we'll use language that makes sense to us in understanding other people to try to understand God. There's a passage in either First or Second Samuel that mentions God regretting something, and then in like two verses later it says God is not a man that he regrets what he has done. The idea is there God is capable of complex emotions, About the closest to which we can understand would be to use the word regret. But he does not regret like we regret. You know, you've probably made mistakes this week, maybe this morning, and have regrets. That's not exactly what this is. The deeper point here is that God is emotionally invested in his creatures. Do you think of God as being emotional? You ever thought about that? God's emotions? It's been said that we understand God mainly through the lens of our own human fathers. So many of us perhaps had kind of stoic, emotionally reserved or emotionally unavailable fathers. We didn't really see them do a lot of crying, weeping. God, our Heavenly Father, is not that way. He is... The perfect origin of where our human emotions come from is made in his image. And he's not stoic, and he is not robotic or detached from what's happening with humanity. He is emotionally invested. He cares. He cares. He cared about those people in that shooting. He cared about everybody at 9-11. He cared about people involved in the Holocaust. He cares about you, and he cares about me. And when he sees people sinning, when he sees great wickedness in the world, when he sees evil in the thoughts of the intentions of the heart, he grieves. It grieves him to his heart, the passage says. It's like a parent. You you who are parents, if you see your children, whether they're young kids or grown, if you see them making terrible decisions, harming themselves, harming others, You don't view it unemotionally. say, well, that's just a human being doing what humans do. Unless you're kind of sociopathic or something. You have an emotional response to that. And it's the same with God and people. So he sees what's going on in the world and he cares. Sin grieves him. Which leads us to verse 7. The Lord responds. He acts. He's not passive. Verse 7. So the Lord said... I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. He acts. This is called wrath. It was catastrophic in Noah's day. And it will come again. He does not just turn a blind eye to the sins of the world. There will be vindication, there will be judgment, there will be justice. In the New Testament, we see that the only reason he holds off, you see things like that and you wonder, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he step in and just squash the evil of the world? And the answer given in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, is that it's kindness. He is waiting and giving people a chance to repent and turn toward him and receive mercy and grace before he does but it it is coming. So what difference does it make for us as Christians to think about the world and ourselves in light of these things? What difference does it make for how we receive the news or scroll our Twitter feeds? What difference does it make for how we engage in discussion about these things? What difference does it make for how we understand ourselves? Thankfully, this passage and and we too during the sermon will land on a note of hope. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thankfully, God is not only wrathful and just and fearsome and committed to justice and righteousness, but he is also merciful and gracious and forgiving. And he's always preserved a remnant. No matter how bad things have gotten in the world, he's always preserved a remnant. We saw it with Seth and his lineage a couple weeks ago. We see it now with Noah because he found favor with God. Noah and his family are saved. We'll see it a little bit later in Genesis with Abraham and then with Israel, the small nation among all the nations that God preserves as his people, And then even as Israel begins to disintegrate spiritually, there's a remnant within Israel the New Testament calls true Israel, leading to, finally, Jesus Christ and all who take refuge in him, the righteous remnant in this world, the kingdom of God. In youth, lately on Wednesdays, I've been teaching them different facets of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And each Wednesday, I'll give them another big, long theological word. I doubt they remember any of the big, long theological words, except maybe Isaac, because he's weird about words, kind of like I am. But One of those big, long words is propitiation. Anybody use the word propitiation this morning, just in casual conversation? Propitiation is, is the word that captures the idea that part of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ— is he's provided a shield to protect us from his wrath. It's the idea that on the cross, the brutal, bloody cross, Jesus was absorbing God's righteous wrath towards sin for all who would take refuge in him. So that when judgment comes, those who are Christians, those who are trusting and following Jesus, will not have to bear God's wrath for their sin. Jesus bore it already on the cross. Christians are those sheltering together under the shield of Jesus Christ, protecting us from God's righteous wrath. I heard a story one time about a pastor amidst a riot. I think it was in L.A., I can't remember for sure. I couldn't find it, so I'm just going by my memory. But it was supposedly a true story. There were riots in L.A., and there was a pastor out in the crowd with his Bible just pleading with people to stop, to listen to what's true. And in the midst of that riot nearby, he saw part of the crowd just descended on this one man, and the wrath of that crowd was just pouring out on this one poor man who was huddled down the ground. They were kicking and beating, and the pastor forced his way through with his Bible and just collapsed over the man with his Bible over his head in absorbing the blows of the crowd, protecting that man. That's the picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Each of us as sinners rightly deserves the wrath of God. That's a harsh thing to say. That's an unpopular thing to say in our culture. It seems mean, but it's just true. God is righteous. He's a good judge, and he doesn't look the other way. But through Jesus, he's provided covering for us. So I'll close with a couple of questions to help us own all this. Do you think like a Christian? When you see headlines like the Las Vegas shooting, do you process that like a Christian versus just an American citizen only? Do you think about the world in light of the fact that God is the main factor in reality? I want to invite you with me to try to ask questions like, what does God see here? What does God feel about this? What is God doing here? What might God do in response to this? In light of the fact that the Lord sees sin and grieves over sin, do you personally regularly confess your sin and repent of your sin? Do you take your sin seriously like God does? Is there anything that you're hiding, hoping that maybe he won't see? Maybe you could get away with it. I promise you, you can't. The best thing you can do is just come into the light Because he's promised anybody who confesses their sins and humbly repents and receives his forgiveness will be forgiven. There'll be no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. If you'll confess to those you've sinned against, and especially God himself. I remember in elementary school, this may shock you, but I was a poor student. I did not work very hard. My brother was a more problematic entity in our house about schoolwork than I was. I could just kind of get by with minimal effort, and so minimal effort is what I gave. Uh, Would often not do my homework, which was great the night before it was due because you didn't have to be doing homework, but it was terrible the next day when it was due. And I remember in one particular, you know how they rearrange your seats? In one scenario, I was seated like right here. The teacher was standing like right here basically teaching and she was going over the homework. And I was trying with my notebook to have it so close that she couldn't see that I hadn't done it. And I was trying to sort of write it in. And obviously, she said, Matt, you didn't do your homework, did you? She saw. My point in telling you that story is many of us live our lives like that. Like little kids thinking we can hide stuff from the all-seeing God that knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He knows. He knows. When we go and confess our sin to him and, and seek forgiveness and release from it, he's not surprised. You did what? Well, this is the first I've heard of it. He knows. Come clean. Come into the light. There's grace for you. There's mercy for you. There's forgiveness. There's freedom. In light of God's wrath against sin... Do you urgently and intentionally communicate the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we, especially those who grew up in the church, are we numb to these realities now? Are we able to see people around us, people we care about, living in sin, and be unconcerned? Are we able to go about the American dream and be pretty comfortable and not, not worried about people? And I ask the question that way because that's part of what I see in my own heart as I study this passage. And I, I'm trying, I'm confessing that to the Lord. I'm trying to repent. I need I need his help. I think sometimes we get, I'm assuming that some of you are like me. Um, I think sometimes we get numb to these bigger, greater, grander spiritual realities because we're just so busy with the little here and now. Forget big facts like Jesus is going to return and time is going to be up. And the people we love and care about are going to be out of time. And the time for repentance and salvation is now, not then. God, through Jesus Christ, is merciful and gracious and forgiving and patient but that has an expiration date. He'll still be all those things, but eventually he won't hold back his justice any longer. And I don't know how how to feel this right now. I've I've been kind of wrapped up in my own world lately, and I'm praying for God to help me feel the reality of this. And maybe some of you are like me in that. Maybe that's going to be one of our main takeaways as a church. Help us to feel the reality of these things we believe and not be zombies walking through this life numb to them because it's so serious. It's so urgent. All the people out there struggling in sin and darkness, there's hope for them through Jesus Christ, but we've got to give it to them. God sees and grieves and responds to sin. And through Jesus Christ, has made a way for hope for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word here. Thank you for revealing these things you've chosen to reveal. And thank you for bringing us here together to receive it. I pray that we would indeed genuinely receive it and walk away changed and and molded. I pray that you would help us not to be numb to these realities. Lord, whatever calluses have grown over our hearts toward these things, I pray that you would remove them, painful as it may be. I pray that you would remove them. Lord, let us be a people who immediately, when sin enters our lives, confesses and repents that so we can just keep an open, in-the-light kind of relationship with you and one another. And I pray that you would help us to view the world in light of your truth that you have revealed to think like Christians, talk like Christians, act like Christians. And I pray that you will give us the boldness and the opportunities, even today and this week, to communicate the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to people who may face your wrath otherwise. In Jesus' name, amen.